Our passage this morning comes from Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. And I'm aware that reading may have raised a few questions in your mind, like, why did those people die, and can that happen again today? Well, we'll get to that. I promise we'll get to that, but I'm going to start by leading us in prayer, because we need God's help always to rightly understand and apply his word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us through your scripture, as you've promised. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would work in our hearts. And we pray that you would work in our hearts as each of us need. Please, Lord, for those who are weak and struggling, would you strengthen and encourage. And for those who are complacent and need a challenge, we pray you would do that too. We pray all those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we hear the glorious sounds of the children's groups, uh, I want to begin by asking, do you feel the message of Jesus is making progress or going backwards? Especially if you're a Christian here this morning, do you feel like the message of Jesus is making progress today or going backwards? Put it another way round, how confident are we feeling about the message of Jesus expanding and bearing fruit Or are we starting to think it might just shrink and dwindle away? And what is it that discourages us? What are the things that make us feel like it's going backwards? Maybe it's the gloomy statistics about church attendance in Scotland. Uh, Chalmers is fairly full, but actually across the nation, 
the trends are downhill fast. Perhaps it's the discouragement of kind of increasingly strident opposition, whether in the media or in politics. But perhaps most dispiriting of all are scandals in the church. I was chatting to some friends last week about what most gets me down as a Christian leader. And the honest answer was it's the own goals. It's the friendly fire. It's the times when churches give Jesus a bad name. The times when scandals or hypocrisy are revealed in a church or its leadership. We live in a generation longing for authenticity, desperate for a place where there's real community, where there's real love, real change, not just the spin and the lies and the fakery, not just a kind of airbrushed public image hiding an ugly mess beneath. And so the sense of betrayal when you see the headlines yet again of religious leaders sexually abusing those under their care for example, I mean, and covering it up afterwards, it, it's enough to make you sick. Or when the scandals hit of financial embezzlement going on, Christian leaders siphoning off the funds for their own ends. A friend told me of one near them just this week. Even closer to home, a smaller scale, when, when Christians who should know better just really let us down. Hypocrisy in the church can be a deeply dispiriting thing. It's enough to make you think God's kingdom is going backwards, not making progress. Enough to make us think maybe this expansion of Jesus' good news is going to hit the buffers. If you're someone here looking into Christian things, I wonder if that's one of the things that puts you off. Perhaps the big thing that puts you off from, from following Jesus for yourself Maybe you find yourself appalled at the kind of ugly headlines of those who call themselves Christians. Perhaps you wonder to yourself, if God is real, does he not care? Why doesn't he do something? Well, in this morning's passage, we're going to see that God does hugely care for the purity of his church, for the authenticity of the community of Jesus. Actually, alongside that, and this is a huge encouragement to me, alongside that, we'll see that those moments of hypocrisy aren't going to stop the spread of the good news of Jesus, which really matters because some of the people may be rotten, but Jesus Christ is not. The forgiveness that's available in Jesus Christ is not rotten. And so it really matters that his good news continues to go global and offer forgiveness to anyone who would trust in him. And Jesus can be trusted to get us right with God. So let's dive in. You'll see on the back of the handout, we've got three points. The points two and three are going to cover the passage we read. But the first one is going to give, our, give us our bearings on the whole big section, 432 all the way to chapter 6, verse 7. That's because we're going to study that in one block in our small groups and over two Sundays, this Sunday and next Sunday morning. Um, I think this whole block of Acts is really important for us because one of the things that can happen when you see the scandals and the setbacks today in the church, the, the kind of messy stuff, one of the reactions you can have is, is to start to look back to the past 
with rose-tinted spectacles. You know, look back longingly to some Christian period where things must have been better than this. You know, back in the great days, the days of revivals, we've read the biographies, or the Reformation, that must have been amazing, or most exciting of all, the early church. Wow, those days in Acts, those days where everything was growth and progress and excitement and steps forward, where God was powerfully spreading his gospel by his spirit and many believed. If only we lived then. You know, there were no internal church problems then, no backward steps. It was just progress, progress, progress. Easy to think like that. Tempting to think like that. But Acts 5 and 6 is a wake-up call. You see, there's always been setbacks and challenges. There have always been difficulties and discouragements in the church, right from the very start. In fact, even back in chapter 1, we didn't make much of it at the time, but chapter 1 discussed the first scandal. Judas betrayed Jesus. What are we going to do about that? That was chapter 1, and now here we get another scandal. Chapter 5, the lying hypocrisy of two folk in this early church community, Ananias and Sapphira. And actually, this whole section, 432 all the way to 6-7, shows multiple setbacks or potential setbacks for the gospel. I've called this section three scenes of gospel progress amidst setbacks. There are three threats of danger to gospel progress. And if you look on the screen, I'll just run through how it works. So first off, 4.32 to 37, uh, things seem hugely positive. There's a growing community. It's genuine. It's generous. But then, by 5.11, two of its members are dead, and a financial scandal, hypocrisy, has been exposed. So that's scene one, a growing gospel community of generosity, but then a, a kind of satanic counterattack, hypocritical fakery right inside the church. That's scene one. Then scene two, chapter 5, 12 to 16. Well, here's another kind of really positive summary. Again, this community, this church is growing and the reputation is growing in in their local area. But again, a setback strikes. This time it's from outside. It's a political opposition from some of the religious leaders. They lock up the apostles and they beat them up. That's scene two. And then scene three, um, just flick across in your Bibles, um, if you've still got them open, it's page 914, just flick across to chapter six. Page 914, six verse one, again you see Luke telling us how things are growing, so the disciples are increasing in number, and actually increasing in diversity, different cultural backgrounds. But that leads to another problem emerging. So now we've got tensions emerging at the widow's food bank. Just have a look at that picture on the screen. That's the shape of this section. Luke, our author, is telling us how the story is oscillating between steps forward and real challenges. That's the big picture. But why is Luke telling us that? Why do we need to know that? How does it help us today? Well, I think a few things. Most basically... I hope you're just encouraged to see that this historical record has not been airbrushed. It would have been so easy to miss out the red bits, especially for scenes one and three, I think. I mean, you know, just describe a generous, hugely generous church, financially 
um, generous. And, and just don't mention the bit about Ananias and Sapphira. Just airbrush the hypocrisy. Nothing to see here. It would have been so easy in scene three just to mention that widows were being cared for and, and not say that actually we had some struggles with distributing fairly, especially on racial lines. Tensions, disputes, nothing to see here. Everything is awesome. But actually Luke is interested in the truth, the truth of what actually happens. He wants us to have certainty, and so he is candid If you want authenticity, you do find it in the Bible's historical narratives. And the candid facts of the matter are that from year one in the early church, there were internal difficulties as well as external opposition. And you wouldn't have to read on far into the New Testament to discover that was true in every place and every church. So there's one reason why we need this morning Those setbacks and dispiriting own goals that I began with this morning at the start, they're not a new phenomenon. There've always been struggles. There's always been pushback. There's always been the danger of the gospel expansion getting derailed. And actually, we'll see more of this next week, but the two are interlinked. They're inseparable. They're actually inevitable. So in each scene, it's the very growth of the church that triggers a pushback. And that's true spiritually and humanly. So Satan, in our passage, doesn't sit back while the church is beginning to thrive. And nor do human powers and authorities in next week's scene. So if you ask any of those involved in those Christian Union outreach events recently, if you ask the Redeemer leadership team in six months' time, they will tell you this is exactly what it's like. So it's realistic, and I hope that's an encouragement to us. But of course, there's a much bigger reason why Luke is tracking the progress of the message of Jesus, whether it's going forwards or backwards, because Jesus gave his promise that this message would spread. That's the big picture of Acts, whether this good news is going to go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. For those who haven't been here or haven't been awake, um, let me just give a quick recap of Acts so far, because that will help us see how much is at stake in these episodes of danger. So, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the amazing history of what Jesus did after he rose from the dead and went back to the Father. Um, So, a quick recap on the screen. We've had the cross, the empty tomb, and Jesus has returned to heaven. He's disappeared from physical sight at the ascension And I began the series with this question, is Jesus just an imaginary friend? After all, we can't see him. And Luke's answer was no, we can be certain that he's a risen king. That's the claim, Jesus is ruling right now. Um, But actually, how can you know for sure that Jesus is a real ruler today when you can't see him? Well, one key piece of evidence is that he made very clear what he'd be doing in this period while he's not physically on earth. He said at the end of Luke's gospel, repentance and forgiveness will be proclaimed in my name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That promise is where Acts picks up the story, which does give us this very simple test. If you want to know whether Jesus is dead and buried or alive and reigning, has the message of forgiveness 
spread outwards from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And the evidence shows, historically, against all the odds, humanly speaking, the risen Jesus did actually pour out his Holy Spirit and empower 12 ordinary, scared men and all the ordinary, fairly wimpy people like us who've believed in their message to keep spreading it increasingly to the ends of the earth. And so far, things have been gone pretty well. So in chapters 1 to 7, Acts focuses on Jerusalem. And just as Jesus said it would happen, Jerusalem's been filling with the sound of this message. A wonderful, believing community has formed. It's hugely exciting. It all sounds really rosy to this point. But then we need this section. You see, even as the gospel moves powerfully forward there are always challenges and setbacks and difficulties. Don't be surprised by this. Don't think they only come from outside. So last week we did see the first kind of external opposition and Peter and John were interrogated and threatened to stop speaking. But actually this week the problems start inside And we need to not be surprised. We also need to not be dismayed. You see, it might look from that diagram like like those arrows are kind of equal and opposite forces, kind of eternal forces locked in kind of eternal paralysis, a bit like Brexit and the EU. You know, no real progress. But actually, just look at chapter 6, verse 7, the end of this big block. 6, verse 7. Let me read that. Chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That verse is a key marker in the book of Acts. You see, despite all of these setbacks, King Jesus is unstoppable. He's promised this message is going global. He's promised it will fill Jerusalem, and so it does. The first great circle in Jesus' expansion plan is happening. So that's our first point, and that gets us our bearings for this big section. And I hope over these two Sundays, this proves to be a huge encouragement to us. When difficulties and discouragements come and they will, and they have. Well, we need to know this. The Redeemer family will need to know this. The Chalmers family staying here will need to know this. Despite the setbacks, there will be gospel progress. Right, on to point two and the passage uh, we read at the start. And let me read again, just to get our heads back into it. I'll read um, chapter 4, verse 32. I'll just read that first bit again. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, 
For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I'll pause there. Last Sunday evening at the baptism service, I got chatting to someone who'd hardly ever been in church. Um, I was asking him what he kind of made of things, what he thought of what he heard. Uh, to be honest, he wasn't keen on the message. Um, the one thing he did say, he was really struck, even a bit envious, of the community that his new Christian friend had. That's entirely right, actually. We're hearing it in Ephesians on Sunday nights, more tonight. The message of Jesus does produce a unity, a love among people that simply wouldn't exist were it not for him. And here in this early church is a beautiful picture of mutual commitment, isn't it? Verse 32, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In our atomized and individualistic society, this just cuts so against the grain, doesn't it? And actually, this kind of mutual commitment to each other is deeply attractive. And the point is not that the leaders enforced a kind of socialist model, a kind of top-down communism on everyone else. It's not that private ownership was banned Actually, quite the opposite, when when we get to chapter 5, verse 4, we see that Christians did own things and they were free to keep them or dispose of them or some of them as they saw fit. Later in Acts, we'll see that Christians did own houses and use them for the church to meet. So it wasn't kind of enforced, no private ownership. No, it was free and voluntary giving. They had such a sense that they belonged to each other, such a unity in common heart. That, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. It's a beautiful picture. And it's striking, isn't it? Notice that they're not just giving from kind of disposable income, a little bit that doesn't cost much. No, they're even giving from their capital. They're selling assets to meet genuine needs within the church family because they belong to each other. It's extraordinary. It's like what we read last year in our motto series in 1 Timothy, if you remember that. The church is God's household. It's a family. And the genuinely needy need to be looked after. That's why scene three next week will show vulnerable Christian widows being fed. I think this is both a huge encouragement to us and a challenge to us. The encouragement is that I've only been in this church for a year and a half, but I see huge amounts of commitment to one another of generosity, including financial, sacrificial, repeated giving. I guess the challenge for many of us is to persevere in that. It's hard, isn't it, when the culture is saying, live for yourself, spend for yourself, look after number one. Hard to persevere in genuine commitment (coughs) to your church family. I think it's a challenge to not just give financially, but give in other ways, to give time. We may be money rich, but we're time poor here. Sharing in other ways, service, just care, love, and concern for one another. Here's the question, I think a key question for us. What grows this kind of generous community? I hope we want the answer to that question, because 
Because becoming more and more consistently like this as a church would be hugely countercultural. It is attractive in our society. Uh, that phrase, by the way, um, there was no needy among them. That's lifted from verse 34. That's lifted from Deuteronomy 15, which spoke about how God's people were supposed to live in the land. This is the reality of what God's kingdom was always supposed to be like, and it's deeply attractive. But what can grow it? If you're someone here who actually feels like maybe I've taken a bit of a step back from loving and serving others, from sacrificial commitment to the community, well, I hope you want the answer to what grows this generosity if it's faded or if it's never really been there. Is it try harder? Is it turn over a new leaf today? Is it more pressure from up front? Well, the answer to what grows it is sitting in verse 33. It's really striking, actually. I wonder if, as I read, you noticed there's, there's one verse that kind of sticks out. It's the odd verse out. Just have a look at it. Verse 32 could easily run into verse 34. So end of 32, they had everything in common. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. But it doesn't flow on because Luke sticks verse 33 in. I think as a reminder of where all of this is coming from. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. See, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ risen, the gospel of grace, that's what frees us and motivates us to commit to each other and give to each other. It's actually, we've seen it before, it's just like Acts 2. Do you remember? Peter preaches a, a gospel message. It forms a Christian community. And what are they devoted to? Well, in Acts 2, it's the apostles' teaching and fellowship, commitment to one another. Even back then, they were selling possessions and distributing to the needy. And the same thing here. The message of the apostles, the good news of Jesus risen, that's what grows committed, genuine, generous, community. How is that? How is it that the hearing about the resurrection of Jesus leads us to real commitment and generosity? Well, that could be a whole other sermon, which I'm, I'll, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to give you right now. Um, a couple of brief things. It would be a good thing to talk about. Um, obviously, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that this life is not all there is, which loosens my grip on material things right now, my possessions, and it strengthens my resolve to see other people safe for eternity. That's one way it helps us, I think. The resurrection shows us that people last, possessions don't. But also, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the things, that, the key thing that unites us as a family. They were of one heart and soul. Why? Because they have one Lord, the risen King Jesus. And that King has poured out one spirit on the whole church family. And we all came in the same way, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. We have one heart and soul because we share so much in the risen Jesus and his good news message. Which just means that kind of real Bible-centered or real community-centered churches are not two alternative options. The first is the means to the second. 
God's word, the the message of the apostles, is what grows us in connection to each other, commitment to each other, genuine sacrificial community. And so, motivated by the gospel of grace, we start to hear in verse 37 of this guy, well, the disciple formerly known as Joseph. He gets the nickname Barnabas because of his amazing example, his encouragement. And I assume it was the gospel of grace that motivated him to sell that field. The same gospel can motivate us to loosen our grip on our stuff, our money, our time, our energy, and instead share it with others. That's point two. The message of Jesus grows genuine, generous community. But of course, no sooner has Barnabas got a name for himself, the encourager, the open-hearted, open-handed, generous one, well, then we meet Ananias and Sapphira, who are no less famous, but for the wrong reason. They were trying to fake it with God. This is our third and final point. So we've seen the message of Jesus grows genuine, generous community, but from chapter 5, 1 to 11, we see the temptation of Satan is to fake it. Now, let me clarify a few quick questions about this extraordinary story. You'll see them on the handout. What did they do wrong? Where did they get the idea? Does God still react like this? And what are the implications for us? Firstly, what did they do so wrong? Well, yes, they sold a field and didn't give all the money. But notice that was not the crime. The message of this passage is not give everything or risk death. And in fact, if you hear a Christian fundraising campaign like that, don't listen to them. (laughs) Peter is really explicit, isn't he? Verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Look, you didn't have to sell that field, Ananias. And then after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Even having sold it, you were free not to give it all. So what was so bad? Well, look at what comes just before and after that. So verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? End of verse 4. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And verse 9 with Sapphira. And Peter said to her, tell me how much you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Ananias and his wife lied to God. They agreed beforehand to pretend to be something they were not. And in lying to the church and the apostles, they were lying to God himself. They were testing God by suggesting he wouldn't know any better. So maybe they could get a reputation for generosity, for impressing folks at church. Maybe they'd even get a nickname like Barnabas did. And no one would know they'd kept a little bit back. But here's the thing. We can fool people, but we can't fool God. He sees right through us. He knows our hearts. He knows the facts. He knows when we're lying. And this episode, right at the start of the early church, it does show that God hates hypocrisy. He hates fakery in his church even more than we do when we hear of those scandals. 
that I started with. God knows that the message of Jesus produces authentic, genuine community. What we saw in 4.32-37. And so he is emphatically opposed to the counterfeit fakery of chapter 5. Not least when you notice where the temptation came from. Did you see this? This is the second question. Where did they get the idea? Just look back. 4.31. Just look there. This we're reminded there, this community, this Christian community, it's filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers their boldness, their love, their generosity. But in chapter 5, verse 3, look who's doing the filling. Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, we don't actually know if Ananias and Sapphira were genuine converted Christians What we do know, as Peter writes later in the Bible, that the devil prowls round like a roaring lion seeking to tempt and devour real Christians. Satan, the spiritual opponent of God, is opposed to all he's doing. Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. And what better place to attempt to fill with lies than the church? If he can cast doubts on the reality of what Jesus' message does, well, then maybe just someone will be put off from finding forgiveness in Christ. Both Satan and actually Ananias are to blame for this episode. Satan provides the temptation. This is his great counterattack on the progress of the gospel in Jerusalem. If you can't beat them, although he will actually try that next week, but if you can't beat them, then corrupt them. And Ananias gave in, contrived a lie. Question three, does God still react like this? The answer to that might surprise you. The answer is yes, and not immediately. God's righteous character is unchanging. He never changes. His holiness his standards, his burning righteousness, his absolute moral purity does not and cannot change. He hated hypocritical lies, satanic fakery that day, and so he hates it today. That's actually encouraging when you read of the scandals and hypocrisy in the world. We, can ha- we should have no doubt that those who've abused or exploited others whilst claiming the name of Jesus, especially whilst claiming to lead Jesus' people, we have, can have no doubts that God will take that terrifyingly seriously. So yes, in that sense, God still reacts this way. And yet we don't see people dropping dead here and now. So why? Well, remember Acts 2 and the time frame we're in. We're living in the last days, that is, the time before the great awesome day of the Lord, the time before the day of reckoning, the day of judgment, the day of justice. That means the days we're living in now are the days when God is offering forgiveness to all who turn and trust in Christ, even to religious hypocrites and fakers, even people who've got this wrong, even people like me. And you. You see, the instant death of Ananias and Sapphira, it was exceptional, not because 
God doesn't usually care about this kind of stuff, lying. But because on this day, he hit fast forward to Judgment Day. He gave a preview of the end. He kind of skipped ahead. Or to put it another way, he, he gave a sign and a wonder. We've seen this before in Acts. Signs and wonders. They're unique, unmissable, supernatural signposts. A kind of one-off proof of a lasting lesson. So at Pentecost, extraordinary phenomena to show that the Spirit, Holy Spirit had been poured out. And yet everyone who trusts in Jesus receives the Spirit from now on. Last week, an extraordinary miracle to make a lame man walk in the name of Jesus, proving for this whole period that there's one name, Jesus, to call on if you want to be saved and forgiven. And here, another sign and wonder, a much more scary sign and wonder. But a reminder that God thinks hypocrisy and lies have no place in his church. That's why when you go on and read the New Testament letters to the church, the purity of the community is taken really seriously. Now let me clarify something here, especially if you're here as someone who's not a Christian. Actually, this is not about you at all. We do not expect you to behave like a Christian until and unless you come to see who Jesus is, that he is who he says he is, Lord Non-believers are hugely welcome in church to watch in on what's going on. The thing the New Testament really cares about, the thing that I guess God can't stand, is Christians living in unrepentant sin. Hypocrisy. If you want to think more about this, 1 Corinthians 5 would be a great place to go. But of course, this all gets us to the final question. What are the implications for us? And we may want to talk about this more. Feel free to ask me questions about this because I'll cover this relatively quickly. What are the implications for us? Perhaps for one or two here, this is a real wake-up call. If you know you've been pretending, living a real double life, putting a good show on Sundays, but actually harboring unrepented sin, sin you're not even trying to fight, not even praying about, not even making any effort to get rid of, or don't let this warning shot just bounce off you. But I imagine there are many Christians here with really sensitive consciences who are starting to feel really worried during this sermon. I mean, after all, who of us can honestly say we've never fallen into this trap, the the trap of presenting a better impression of our giving or our serving or our Christian life? than is actually the case. I mean, who hasn't pretended to other Christians that we're witnessing more than we are? Especially during the motto series when people keep asking. I mean, if everyone dropped dead when they exaggerated their generosity or their sacrifice, would there be anyone left? Would I be standing here to preach? No. And there's a wrong way out of that conundrum. The wrong way is to say, well, God doesn't really mind. He doesn't mind if we lie. He's not quite this serious anymore. What's a bit of exaggeration or spin or putting a public face on on Sundays or small group? I know fear of God came on the church then in verse 11, but we're more relaxed now. That's the wrong way out, saying God's calmed down about hypocrisy. The right way out 
is to admit before God and each other that we are sometimes tempted to fake it when it comes to godly living or giving or sacrifice or witness. Sometimes we do share stories in small group when we've got something that looks good and hide away the real mess we are. Sometimes we're not candid. And admitting that is the first step. The second step is seeking the full forgiveness that Jesus provides. Remember, the risen Jesus offers full forgiveness. We have it in his name. We're entirely safe from judgment, covered by his blood. The church is not a trophy cabinet of perfect people. The church is a hospital for broken sinners who know they need to be forgiven. We're to admit our ongoing need for forgiveness, to keep asking each other and most of all God's Holy Spirit to help us to change. The whole Christian life is repentance and faith. Because the gospel of grace is what builds authentic community. And before we despair at ourselves, let me close by saying, thankfully, that gospel of grace is unstoppable. Remember the big section, the big point? King Jesus, despite all of our weaknesses, all of our failings, King Jesus is spreading his message of forgiveness. And we're included And through us, many others will be, we pray. Let me close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as I prayed at the start, I pray again, Lord, that for those who need reassurance and encouragement, that by your Spirit you would help us to know the full forgiveness we have in Christ, that there is no condemnation (laughs) in Christ Jesus. But for Father, Father, for any who have been dabbling in hypocrisy and not taking sin seriously, please, Lord, would you wake us up and help us know the glorious gospel of grace that forgives us and changes us. And we pray we would be a church full of authentic love for you and each other. In Jesus' name, amen.